Welcome to Speak with Eve. I'm your host, Eve Eurydice, and uh, my guest today is a writer uh, I admire. She's the author of uh, six, seven books, including a trilogy of books about the Armenian genocide um, and its aftermath. She was born in Saudi Arabia of Armenian heritage, um, uh, Michelin, Arachonian, Markom. Welcome to the show, Micheline. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice to have you. Um, so today I uh, move to discuss with you the future of literature, the future of academic learning, uh, of cultural appropriation, <laughs> and the the resulting kind of like loss of trust in authority, right? Or at least in the authority of the knowledge keepers. So um, you're, you know, you are a professor. You've spent your career more or less um, in academia, more than me, anyway, right? So it mm. seems to me that you know, academia used to hold like, you know, knowledge and knowledge makers, uh, you know, a tight, right, in the gatekeeping that like reinforced the privatization of knowledge that's been going on since like the beginning of the patriarchy, basically, right? Where like culture made knowledge and knowledge belonged to like the elites, you know, the priests, and then later, you know, I mean, the bookkeepers, then the priests, and that, and that kind of went back and forth, I think. <laughs> you know, then forcers of power or the, divi- you know, diviners of power, kind of like back and forth. But anyway, then even with the Gutenberg Press and the widespread literacy, you know, in the industrial model, um, yeah. I, I feel that, um, you know, universities and schools like held on to knowledge um, and that changed with the invention of the computer. So um, since the 1960s, we had like the French philosophers, you know, telling us basically that everything is simulation and hyper-reality and deconstruction and, you know, structuralism and false perception of the self in the mirror and all of that, right? So we, the death of the author. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm talking about like Jacques Derrida, Lacan, Barth, Baudrillard, oh, oh, and, and from there we find ourselves in this moment where all of that has come true, you know, very practically, and there is a burgeoning, you know, civil war between the populists and the elites. I only have my own anecdotal, really, observations in mm-hmm. the classroom for 25 years. And then there are bigger questions of, and maybe bigger patterns about, you know, other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know where you want to start. I mean, I think that I was having this thought this morning, I'm reading a lot of Kafka, for class I'm teaching, that... Um, it's so difficult to see the time you live in mm. with any kind of uh, real clarity and uh, with not, I don't know what the right word is. It's not exactly clarity, but with like, you just, you know, you just, you see it, you can see it well. That's very, that's always difficult. Maybe it's more difficult now because it's a noisy rumbling time with so much uh, access to these media, social, so-called media, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's always, always difficult. And there are always noisemakers that seem like they're speaking the truth and uh, speak with conviction and authority. And those can come from all kinds of political backgrounds, but I generally probably aren't. And, um, and, And time then reveals to us you know, uh, more uh, of the pattern. Someone like Kafka, who probably saw through some things that he could encode in his literature in the 20th century. Um, and not just in the ways even that he's understood, you know, like, oh, the, the, way, the term Kafka, whatever that means for people, and dark and bourgeois, you know, whatever uh, world that we live in, of procedures, etc. Um well, that was what I was thinking about this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, you know, as, as someone who reads a lot, I'm, I'm seeking 
wisdom and uh, I don't find it very much in too much of the current discourse even in the last hundred years I feel like you have to for me I have to look at books across time Mm. uh, and space and then there are these moments little bits of like I feel like you know what Borges might call the labyrinth you're in the labyrinth if you read a lot and in books here and there uh, you will find these bits of gnosis of human knowledge mm-hmm. that has been that has been kept and is there for those you know uh, who who read who seek um, yeah. yeah who seek and I mean so reading is the thing that I do I'm, I know that there are lots of ways to come to wisdom and knowledge and I'm not saying that reading is the only one but it's the one that I know that I know the best because I've spent 25 years reading more closely than you know always I was always a reader as a child but really reading and in, in this different way um and so that's what i <laughs> i'm not answering your question but that's what i'm thinking about um because i i wonder if sometimes i don't really know what's going on but whatever's going on didn't just start you know it's been going on for a while probably for four or five hundred years or something we're in some or maybe since the so-called enlightenment or whatever it is you know it has something to do with what uh, we might call secular society when society doesn't even believe anymore in anything outside itself and, and holds itself up as the final arbiter of all things. So the gods, the divine, the absolute is not even admitted as a possibility. I and mean, it's a very strange thing, probably very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't, you can't, whatever the forces are, potencies or the gods including the godhead you can't just talk your way out of it you know we still see we still see it like when violence shows up on the scene for example there's no reasonable answer (laughs) or explanation so reason in that sense becomes a kind of a dead end well i mean the enlightenment uh, was a (laughs) re-education you know on a like vast scale right of human beings and like pre-enlightenment, you know, people invoked the gods or or the saints or hoped f- for, you know, a solution or redemption in in the other world. And now, you know, magic was like transplanted by science and computational math and, um, yeah, even yeah, even finance, even financial instruments <laughs> like crypto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's something around that that's happening. That Simone Weil said it. And, uh, you know, the, the social is uh, is the only idol, and I think about that a lot. And what mm. that means if you if you're all, if you idolize the things that the social or society makes, whether it's its institutions, its laws, its banks, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And without, you know, without that other world um, or, you know, that, uh, that kind of intuitive or alchemical connection to, to nature that's, you know, represented by these, you know, otherworldly practices, um, you know, death, like, makes us sick. Like, just the idea of death because we, we you know, we have no way of, of um, accepting it. There is definitely a trend toward... Um, division between the people you know who are supposed to know and 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 have knowledge to pass on, and those who were you know supposed to kind of like receive knowledge, who no longer trust the knowledge makers and givers, right? I guess what people call cultural appropriation is nonsense. Mm. It's uh, to me, it's nonsense. It, it doesn't make any sense. Whose culture? Who? Who are? Who are the police? Who and who decides they're the police of culture? Mm-hmm. And based on what is that? Based on blood? We're talking about someone's blood. Well, how much? How much? What's the authenticity factor here? Because we're speaking of the. Yeah. I guess the, the authentic and then the the uh, the raiders or something. The mm-hmm. colonizers is I guess the term people would use now. I don't think. I don't think if anyone thinks any of this through, you, you, you just steer at a dead end here. It doesn't make any sense. And and if you go at all into understanding history, and I mean, I'm no no expert, but I know that humans have been exchanging their knowledge, their stories, their technology, 
as since we, you know, probably walked out of East Africa. Um, so that, so it just, it doesn't make sense to me. And I think what it's really about is power and who has power and who wants power and who feels resentful. And that as usual, you know, the clothing of the, dis, of the dialogue or the discourse is saying one thing, but really is about sort of something else, which seems to be a power play. Um, mm. most, most of the time, if we're not, if we're not speaking in, in specifics. And I, I mean, as someone who loves books and I don't love all books, but I love books and what they do, I'm always looking for like the individuals, you know, the artists who, who were onto something, mm -hmm. who were listening or working at a high level and, um, and are able to transmit that in, in their work. Um, and I, it doesn't matter to me if the work is doing that, that's what matters to me. I think that's such a great gift. I don't understand. I always tell my students, you know, don't beat books up. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you beat up a book or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Don't read it if you don't like it, I guess. But um, this this game of politics that's in everything, um, I just, I, I think it's misguided mostly. I really do. And um, I think mostly, at least in terms of literature, is because people aren't really reading. <laughs> you know, we're really distracted. And to read, like to really read is to spend a lot of time because it's not in the first read of anything that you, I mean, you barely are there when you first read something wonderful. You have to read again and again, and that's where the real pleasure is. And, which I think literature is doing and myths and what stories do, they're thinking about bigger patterns. And mm -hmm. then as humans, we're just, we're noisy, we talk a lot, we yell, we scream, we, you know, we, we fight, we fuck, whatever we do, all that's wonderful. But it, it may not be what's really going on, just like how I often don't really know what's going on with myself, you know? Mm -hmm. I think I'm fine, and then I'll watch a commercial and I'll start crying because who knows, you know, we don't often, so that the drama of human life or the theater is not always what it seems. And I think even in this case, um, I think often there's just this, this resentment that is often really personal, actually, when I look at specific people who are complaining. And so we play out our personal lives, of course, in the public sphere. And the social media, that's even easier because <laughs> everyone can put their opinion in the public sphere. One, you know, great like um, positive energy, you know, that there is in the in the literary impulse is this, you know, trust that there is a future, and and there is a reader in that future, you know, who wants to read this, this chronicle, right? This testimonial. I mean, like you know, Anne Frank hid, hidden in that you know secret annex, right, right in her journal or whatever. So that that's you know. I mean, for Kafka, very much. That's I think that's that's there. He understood, and I think we understand as writers that the language that we use is very debased because we're using it to speak now. We're using it to sell laundry detergent. We're using it to run the banks, and so this is all this. And so to have words reverberate and resonate again in a way that they do say in sacred works, or mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that is, or to make so that they are part of literature um that's that's part of it and figuring out how to do that and i mean and just rereading because i was reading the trial this morning mm -hmm. it's so in in how he does it, it i'm not even i don't know but so that words that are quite pedestrian suddenly they start humming words like duty and words like guilt and uh uh just a few others I was thinking about. It's uh, it's it's extraordinary, actually. The law, of course. Yeah, the law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very hermeneutical the way that you know his works uh, read. Um, yeah, and I, I guess by religious tal Talmudic, what, you, you know. <laughs> yeah, so that by religious we might mean uh, that that we re and we re know the the magic, like the Egyptians might have said, of of the word or in the Logos, the book of John, right? The beginning was the word, the, the extraordinary magic, whatever language is, um, whatever communication it's permitting, I think old cultures 
you know, or the Vedas understood that language mm-hmm. was something more than um, at least in, you know, current that we just, that we remember, mm-hmm. we, we have forgotten maybe. And so literary arts, I think, at least in part, um, are, are about that. I mean, I even as, even not knowing any of that when I started writing, I've always felt this affinity for language, for the word, and I and just intuitively gravitated to writers and in my own work to tr- to understanding that you have to get the language to sing; it has to sing again, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and just all yeah. the ways in which it can, whether it's narrative, it's rhythm and musicality, it's uh, it's tone, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. all these things that I often talk to my students about, but. But then the writer herself has to find her own way with language to make it kind of, you know, like someone like William Faulkner, who I also really love, to mm-hmm. make it kind of do work again so that it, it opens into into silence as much as into speech in some, in some ways. It, it takes you places where you get beyond language um, and to experiences that in other ways, you know, maybe an, an ecstatic might have an mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. that she or he can't put language to. And I think books have that capacity too. And it's hard to talk about because reading is such an, an individual solitary thing. So to really talk about what happens when one reads, mm-hmm. when you have an experience like that is so difficult to, to put language to. But I think it's part of the reason, it's not the only reason I've always been a reader because it's something I didn't experience till I was a little older, but that's part of the reason I read that deep communication with the soul that is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then you can also just be entertained and have the wonderful magic carpet ride of story and go into distant realms and, you know, be, that's wonderful too. Right. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what Kafka does so well, you know, he just, you know, starts with something that's so wild <laughs> that you just yeah. got to stay with it to figure out what, you know, where we are <laughs> and how we got here and we, you yeah. know, what is this world and, we, you know, what humans are those, <laughs> right? And then you, yeah. you know, yes, yeah. And the system that you're yeah, in. And what's system. so strange yeah. about it is that all the physical, earthly details of the metropolis and the banks and this and that are there but you as you read you know that's not what's really happening you know that it's about something else so there's always this multiple levels of reality somehow when you read you know that yeah 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 and and so that's extraordinary you know yeah um and that's something that i think yeah yeah, I well, that's what, do. you know, like, that's the hermeneutics or the, you know, biblical or where it's like the literal and then there mm-hmm. is the allegorical and the anagogical and the moral and, you right, there are all these layers at the same time. So it allows you to read something. Uh, it, it allows a text to become, you know, sacred. That text has this ability to mean more than what it just says. Um, otherwise, you couldn't have this experience of it. Right. And at the same time, all the commentaries on any text never can stand in for the thing itself. Like It's only through reading or maybe listening if it's recited out loud. And that's what's amazing, too, you know. And last time we met on the island of Crete, we were talking about, uh, you know, prehistoric civilization. And we're actually, you were, you know, we're talking about the, the uh, Minoan writing that has and has not been deciphered. And, you know, the, the, the power of the goddess or the you know, female div- divine um, matri- matriarch or, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. mother body in that culture. Um, yeah, and the, yeah. the spiral, the kind of, yeah. you know, meditative labyrinth again, right? Going round, around, 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 and, you know, through this kind of like repetition, you know, finding sense. Most people, most of us, myself too, but most of us just don't even know that we're just, that what we're thinking is, where do we get these thoughts from? Where do we get these ideas from? Well, they're just, it's like mimetic behavior. It's just, it's just moving around. Everybody just picks it up and thinks that they're thinking. Well, are you really thinking? No, I doubt it, you know? Um, so uh, that's just always going on with human beings. Maybe the internet, yeah. or, that's just made it more, you just see it go fast because now things, ideas flash and they just, they come on like, here's the thing. Now this is, this is the moral truth. 
this is justice, social justice or whatever, you know, and then it changes and then it's something else and it keeps, it's splintering and splintering and splintering. So it seems like it's changing quickly, but it's probably the same pattern of, you know, mimetic behavior or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, we all, you know, we all want to desire what others desire. Otherwise, this world would, mm-hmm. not, would not make sense at all. <laughs> like if we could just yeah. be authentic and we weren't trained to, you know, do as others do or, or care what others think or all that stuff. That's our like conditioning. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he also, René Girard speaks of the scapegoating mechanism, right? Which, yeah, he does. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, that's when, when, when our, con- our desires finally converge on like um, an object and that same, you know, that creates like the moment of violence when violence erupts right. and right. You know, attacks this, that one victim that stands in for, right. let's say, all of us, right? So, right, right. Um, and we see that all the time now. I mean, it's just whatever this canceling thing, what is that? That's the scapegoat mechanism, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a lot, in, on, and it's like coming from all sides. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. It's such a human thing. Yeah. Yeah, and and it, it may be that like the sacred can only express itself through the, the you know through this. I mean, not express itself, but ex- express itself clearly. You know, in a way that everybody understands. Oh, you know, that's how we're changing as a culture uh, is through you know h- huge kind of sacrifice like that. Um, I don't know, but but definitely both in the th- you know in Kafka's time or a little after, and you know uh, Faulkner, like there were um, you know huge like um, political and you know s- s- kind of like let's say civil war uh, you know moments going on because uh, we could think of World War Two as the civil war in Europe, right? Um, so. You know, I don't know. I mean, he's in that sense. Yeah, of course. I mean, people say that about his work, but when you read it, when I'm reading it now, again, you know, you can't help but think about how prophetic it is. But um, Mm -hmm. because, of course, he writes before the Second World War, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think he was sensitive. He, He just probably that pattern, if you play the pattern out that was moving, it was going to get to the kind of thing we saw probably right. in the Holocaust and it's terrifying and, and, yeah. and horrific. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And so much of like Faulkner's work, he really influenced me early on was about the dead, you know, and this, the duty to the dead, um, and the, and slavery in America and all the mm-hmm. suffering of African Americans. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you feel that in his work, you feel the heft of, of the dead. Um, oh yeah, I know it's so thick. Yeah. But I mean, both yeah. of them, you know, have that sense of like something is brewing and something is like, you know, breathing, um, and like that, you know, it's gathering force and it's threatening the structure of like law. Because he's working at such an essential level, um, and the language is so. Uh, It's just, it's so, it just reverberates and the stories, you know, so anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There is, yeah. Okay. He was also, he was clairvoyant, actually, Kafka. I didn't realize that. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. He went to a lecture that Steiner gave, Rudolf Steiner. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I just was reading it this morning. I was like, this is so interesting. So Kafka goes, and then goes and meets with him, which we know because he wrote about in his diary. And he went to meet with Steiner, um, you know, the theosophist, Mm -hmm. Blavatsky and all those guys in that new spiritual movement of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. uh, because he didn't really like that he was clairvoyant, I guess. Uh, I don't know. It's, It's very interesting to think about, but there is... And that's something that artists don't often talk about, as we know in, in popular society, but that communication that happens maybe, you know, I know, you know, some people would call it the muse or whatever it is, but there's always a communication with the with other realms or other things or other forces or beings or her, you know, call it what you will. And I think that's, I mean, that's there in Kafka too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his dreams, he, he you know paid a lot of attention to his dreams. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So basically, he 
he went to Rudolf Steiner or he met Rudolf Steiner for that to kind of figure out. Apparently, he went to a lecture Steiner was giving mm-hmm. in Prague. Mm-hmm. Einstein, I guess, went to one too. I mean, that's the thing. Einstein and Kafka overlap. Rilke, he met Rilke. Mm-hmm. Um, and went, there's a, in Kafka's diary, he wrote about, he wrote what he said he spoke to Steiner. We don't know what Steiner said to him, mm-hmm. but uh, it's pretty interesting. And he mentions this clairvoyance that he has that yeah. he doesn't really like. And he never mentions it again, actually. It was 1911. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely like, you know, a lot of Kabbalah, you know, aspects mm-hmm. to the, to you know, to the writing. And that's what we're talking about. You know, there is like a mysticism um, yeah, so perhaps it's there in all great literature. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. And maybe modern literature in the last several hundred years, there's something, I mean, that's interesting to think about too, how it's changed. Um, yeah, I don't know. Because we live in a different time, you know. Mm-hmm. We don't live. We don't live in a time where we regularly have rituals that acknowledge the invisible world realm in some ways that are that are the society itself. You know, if you go to church or temple or you do it on the side, you go on the weekend or whatever. It's not it's the whole society itself is not doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, for sure. That's exactly what you know. I was saying before that. Um... We've lost, you know, we we have lost that whole religious aspect. So we're stuck in this, you know, science, scientism, right? Where we yeah. worship yeah. science instead of God as like the all-knowing, the giver of knowledge. And that's just, uh, there isn't enough yeah. th- there to fill, you know, the human hunger for, for a greater meaning. No. No, or the human heart or the soul. And also, of course, what's so crazy about doing that is that even in physics, you know, the extent that I can understand quantum mechanics and the way people are, you know, we know that, that Newtonian physics isn't real. That that's just one way to, it's a way to describe reality as we experience it through our senses, et cetera, but it's not real. You know, mm-hmm. that life isn't, life isn't uh, made up of, reducible, reducible, reducible things. No, when you are in the quantum world, all of that description doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of fascinating because then, then you end up swinging around to the Vedas or to the old myths who understood levels of reality in ways that, that science just simply in this particular, in one, in this Newtonian model can't, it won't get to, right? It just, it can do some things beautifully, but not others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what I always have a hard time talking about, and I wish I, I try to understand more about, you know, uh, what what they are understanding at the highest levels of physics, right? But that um, that it's uh, it's a mirage that our, you know, it's Maya. What our what we see, it's not really reality. Whatever that is, whatever the real is, it's not what our eyes and ears, right, sense. We mm-hmm. are sense our senses have these particular ways of sensing and they're limited. So then how do we sense what is beyond our senses? The imagination. And then it's so demeaned. It's like, how can you demean something as incredible as human imagination or intuition? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, or what you might call clairvoyance or whatever, you know, it's like, these are this, possibility that human being human intelligence has that is for example you know uh the second coming or the end of the world you know it's a spiritual event uh it's not a historical event but you know when you understand it literally you create you know chaos and and you know violence and confusion right um yeah so yeah, yeah it, we don't have any you know we're losing the understanding of what like uh, spiritual events are, <laughs> you know, mm. which like you said, gnosis, you know, so mm-hmm. like that's the hermetic gnosticism, right? Like mm-hmm. the things mm-hmm. that you see, but not with these two eyes necessarily. Right, um, right. 
And in fact, when I feel like I come to know something, I don't, I only, I feel it because the hair rises on the back of my neck. And that's how mm-hmm. I know something. Mm-hmm. It's not, I can't really think my way through it. I don't have that kind of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. But still, like right now, we're in a moment uh, of, you know, neuroscience, right? It's the fastest moving, like, you know, branch of, of science, you know, record the brain and make, you know, and all the time it's like our brain implants. And now we found out where, where this happens in the brain and what that happens and the signature, you know, this, like, you know, um, and it, that, that's the only stuff that we we listen to, you know, as a, as a culture and we, you know, pay attention to, close attention to, you know, it's a time of reckoning, you know, I feel that the hour mm-hmm. is late <laughs> and, uh, and maybe that's what why I'm asking you, you know, what's the future of literature? What's the future of, you know, will the center hold? You know, it's all the same question, you know. Um, I mean, I think the future of literature will always be those individuals in the world, living or not yet born, who uh, will awaken to that calling and who, you know, even if you think you're doing it for one reason, it may be that it's just it's that possession that writers used to speak of or vocation that I don't think that's changed mm-hmm. because you have to spend so much time alone. <laughs> you have to like solitude. You have to like to love to read. You have to love to spend your time with sentences. That's just not going to be that's always just going to be a small group of people. Yeah, I mean, even and then of course there's all kinds of writing. There's you know writing yarns. There's writing for film. There's writing blog posts. But I'm not speaking of that kind of writing. Um, yeah, they're just they just. But still, any kind of writing you have to. It's still one human being's consciousness up against you know the page. I learned um, that kind of union between culture and nature that I had not experienced at all my, you know, my whole life of thinking and writing and, and uh, accessing other worlds <laughs> uh, when mm-hmm. I, when I was pregnant, you know, and I finally felt mm-hmm. that I, that, you know, I made sense to myself and I was privy to like an unspeakable sacred knowledge, you know, I felt like I hadn't quite existed until then. And now I just like nat- mm. naturally, um, uh, you know, made sense. Like I was naturally outside, uh, you know, the system of patriarchy that seemed to be limiting. Um, and, you know, being like one plus one, you know, being like one consciousness, but two beings kind of thing. Um, it just, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I just felt that this is what it's about. <laughs> you know, I felt fully uh, sentient in... In, in ways that were, you know, beyond my ability to communicate, but were exactly that, you know, what we're talking about, you know, that other language, that other um, sense of being. Uh, so, yeah, and I haven't felt it, of course, since, but, you know, um, I, I feel that, uh, you know, the sense of, like, incubating, that you're saying, like, oh, you know, when your hair stands or, you know, when when you're kind of like, you know, gestating knowledge that's greater than than just like the words that, you know, the, the everyday words that we use to describe, you know, life and, you know, the neighbors and our, our you know, our whatever accounts. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had that. I mean, definitely having, getting pregnant giving birth and then nursing a child for many years. I mean, I, I do remember I was a much more so kind of intellectual probably before then and very in my, you know, so-called head, mm-hmm. uh, wherever that, wherever that is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, yeah, well, I got pregnant and it was like all that intellectual kind of hoo-ha uh, didn't, didn't hold like a candle to this experience of this full, you know, body expression, this, you know, whatever the body that I, this female body that I have that took however many 
millions of years on earth to come into being, I guess, mm. you know, you think about evolution and the evolution of species here and plants and everything, then you just, I mean, it's just, I just remember thinking when I was pregnant, I'm not, I'm not thinking at all. I'm not doing anything. And there's this child mm-hmm. happening in my body, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm making, but mm-hmm. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, like, and then giving birth, which, you know, when people talk about ecstatic experiences, oh, yeah. potentially that, that human beings can have, I was never told. And I, I've spent some time reading about mystics and ecstatic experiences that mystics have had. And, you know, you can look at the saints and this and that. But one of the one of them and the whatever the three, four or five are modes of having a, a mystical experience in your body is birth. Oh, yeah. Natural childbirth. Sure. For sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. and. No, I never thought about that, but I did have a natural childbirth. I had my son at home, mm-hmm, and yeah. yeah, I know. I remember we talked about, it, and I yeah. realized twenty years later, when I gave birth to him, that I hadn't. I had what you could call an ecstatic experience. I had a vision when he was born or becoming born. Mm-hmm. It's so funny that I didn't have any language for it. I didn't know what it was. It was there as a vision until many years later. I was reading about visions that mystics had. And uh, somebody was talking about psilocybin, I guess, and the visions that people have sometimes taking psilocybin talked about the visions that mothers will have when giving birth. Mm-hmm. And like I had this little click in my mind. It was like, yes, I had a vision when I gave birth to my son. I don't know if you did too, but. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, saw, I, I, saw, I saw the ancestors when he was being born. Yeah. I saw them there waiting. And. So that kind of knowledge of the ancestors that, that human beings have always had, like you go back to any of the old stories, everyone's talking about the ancestors and ancestor worship. It's called, I don't think that's the right term, but, and it's just that to me, that's so real. And yet we, I don't have any of the uh, rituals anymore. I didn't, but it wasn't born into a time where they're still here, but, but it's still here. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's still real. Mm-hmm. So just because you lied or ignore something doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah. And that, I just, that's what I think a lot about this, this mirage we live in now with our, that we live in because our minds are so powerful and strong and we're so social. And now we have this internet stuff that we do. And so we're just like, amping up our stories to each other and we voluntarily get these phones or we like listen to these darn stories and and it's all a mirage you know yeah yeah well and a lot of it is yeah no i totally felt that it was like a a rite of passage into into womanhood you know it was like the threshold Mm -hmm. just like Mm -hmm. the new life comes into the threshold of you know the beginning i mean the very beginning of like the possibility of of a separate consciousness like the the mother comes into the you know goes to, comes through this threshold of of adulthood yeah and without it we're just girls <laughs> um and yeah possible i mean and yeah. the sacrifice that's required then you have oh, this yeah. baby oh, and yeah. there's so much sacrifice you yeah. have to give over yourself for yeah. the child yeah to feed the child from your own body and uh yeah, it's great you don't have to do yeah. but we have done obviously for yeah. millennia and so all of that there's just all of that is here that's part of life on earth yeah and yeah it's great i mean i i love it yeah. i love it partly because it didn't fit like all the categories you know like no one quite you know because our culture is so well you know the patriarchy based right there was no um verbal account (laughs) of what this is you know the sense of like first of all like with conception I immediately you know we immediately enter the space between being and unbeing you know because we like I remember I I, I saw like the two little lines that showed that I was pregnant and I went for a walk and I started thinking I hope the walk's not hurting you know I mean it's not even it's not a fetus it's not an embryo at that stage yeah but the sense of my own unbeing had begun where I no longer thought what I want which up to then was all I you know was conscious about is what I was going to do yet next right um, and that broke into into half and it was you know and and then I be- you begin to unconsciously almost you know prioritize um, the well-being of this unknown other that's also you 
you know, yeah. you, you share this one consciousness of you. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's mind blowing, basically. Uh, <laughs> it's very empowering and um, and mystical. Yeah, and just and to think about all these women's bodies, like so that my son through my body, me through my mother, my mother through my grandmother, my grandmother mm-hmm. through my great. I mean, mm-hmm. you just think about that and and go back into whatever time is. I mean, it's just and extraordinary and all this knowledge that is in the fluids in the body is, mm-hmm. you know our friend Ginu Kamani would say it's mm-hmm. so it's it's true it's so much wisdom yeah. in there yeah. that is uh available and it may or may not come into thought maybe because all right the ideas we've inherited you know whether these ideas the debasement of the feminine and of the mother that's been going on for so long and all that but the experience is there you know uh it's so strange that we that we can think our ways into and out of things that aren't i don't know you know like the way that motherhood is kind of debased or the the great feminine you know when the power of making life yeah well i think that you know it's just unbelievable the, the culture is terrified of it i mean that's what it is you know it's so promethean <laughs> um Uh, that the culture yeah. is, you know, terrified. I mean, like this decision by the Supreme Court, like to me, speaks of the terror of the people who cannot have, you know, make la- life with their bodies. The terror of the people who can, you know, um, that like that's as simple as it is. You know, like the people who, you know, do not have a uterus are terrified of the people who do, <laughs> um, because they don't understand it. They can't like. You know, it's, it's it's such a derangement of of what you know of our understanding of humanity, which has been put into words by the male, based on the male desires, the male gaze, the male you know sense of self. Um, that it's just you know too destabilizing. So that's why it's not valued. Um, you know, it's the same reason that like we don't value nature at large you know so like you know according to the law like if you cut like you know 10 ancient oaks you you pay a fine you know if if someone bothers and takes you to court and pays for lawyers and stuff you know the fine would be like a few thousand dollars you know um to me it should be millions of dollars because <laughs> i think that's the value of of natural life you know and it's kind of like the same like the value of the work of the mother to me is should be paid is worth like financially to the culture much more than the value of like ceos you know um or or uh, wall street traders like you know shoving and transferring wealth around to and fro endlessly you know for a cut <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um and yet it's not paid 15% yeah they don't right. pay their share yeah. yeah i mean i think that's really true that this this terror of of all the forces of nature mm-hmm. which we can no matter what thinking we do and whatever you know banks we build or or houses or whatever whatever things we try to protect ourselves from the disorder and the chaos we know this from all the old stories and somehow the mother the great feminine who when you give birth to you know because you are at Uh, mercy isn't the right word but you can't you will enter the chaos when you go into childbirth it is out of your control there's mm-hmm. no being in control mm-hmm. there's just moving into mm-hmm. the pain and uh and trusting this very old uh process that all mammals you know go through in giving birth and live birth and and so the the wanting to distance ourselves not just men men and women from these forces on this earth of ours and pretending that we can which also i think you're right is 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 a fear and trying to distance ourselves from nature but of course we are nature <laughs> we are we are nature we are of earth we are made from earth we are on earth we're earthlings and i'm not sure how much human behavior has changed in all these thousands of years or Yeah, well, you know, the, it's interesting because, like, you know, the cultural project has been to, you know, pretend to 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 dominate, you know, uh, this yeah. chaos, right, and put order on it, 
And here we are, and we're 100% cultural workers, and we want to prove <laughs> that, you know, that's just a fallacy with a pH. <laughs> that, you know, there is no way to kind of like enforce, you know, culture onto, onto nature, right? You know, in the, in the long term, nature will prevail. So how do we adjust our culture to this reality? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I just think uh, I, somehow things have gotten in the last several hundred or maybe longer, maybe a few thousand, who knows, it's the Greeks or whatever, this abstraction. So that once mm. you start in the road of abstracting, mm. you abstract and you abstract and you abstract and you abstract. Mm. And suddenly you're in, you're in some kind of glass palace way, way up in your thinking air that is, 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 is no, is so far from what we might call truth. Right, and so that's why. So again, you go back to Kafka. He's like takes these words, and they again they you go back. What is this? What does the word mean? The, you know, even words themselves that have these long histories, and then you get way. When language allows us to really get far removed from whatever we might call the real, but childbirth does mm-hmm. not. Childbirth mm-hmm. is not a language experience. Right, not at know? all. <laughs> no, the fertile body is just like you know the big issue. You know who owns it, you know, what What happens with it, you know, it's like, uh, that's the whole, whole story of like Eve in the garden and, you know, her stealing of the knowledge and then, you know, her, her having to cover up basically the fertile body that, she, you know, her fecundity <laughs> um, and, you know, cover up her, you know, her sexuality, which is again, like the fecund aspect of her. Um, it's not the sexuality as we think of it now when we have like birth control and, you know, in vitro <laughs> and all of that. <laughs> it's very much the sexual appetite in connection with like, you know, conceiving and, you know, giving natural birth. Um, and, you know, her acceptance of all, you know, comers, so to speak, right? And, you know, patriarchy comes in um, and says, no, you know, you're going to belong to one man so we can regulate things and create order, which is like patrilineal order. We got to know who, you know, the babies belong to. Well, they belong to her. <laughs> but anyway, it's, uh, I think, you know, inevitably we're moving away from that model. Um, and, you know. I don't know. It's hard to tell if we are or are not. I mean, You know, this is all part of the, I probably, these stories, I mean, that story isn't that old, really. I guess it's kind of old, but it's not that old. It's the rise of, it's just part of when written systems come in and it's uh, the rise of agriculture and when human beings become settled, then they tell these kinds of stories. And when you're settled, then you need a lot of children to work the land and then you need to know which children are yours and you have settlements. And then so you have a whole different kind of human organization, I'm guessing then mm-hmm. you know but that that story when i learned uh, grew up as someone who was raised catholic it was taught to me you know probably like all these stories and you you learn it as if it is it is the truth it is the way and and i was taught i think pretty directly that women were inferior and so and i think that's a, a terrible falsehood to teach any any human being but it it was uh, it was taught to me, and yeah, I think I rebelled against it for a long time. So it looked, took me a long time to really, I don't know, maybe that's what life is: is trying to come into greater awareness of uh, what you sense in your your quiet part of yourself that 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 gnosis or intuition that isn't a human being able to perceive that we all have what feels really true. Um, yeah. And then so many of those stories, like the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, it's so misconstrued by the readings. It's not that there's the story itself, which you can read in the Hebrew, or you can read the translation and figure out for yourself what you think it means. But it's not that story as much as how people interpret or have interpreted it for us, so that we are living with all these people's interpretations. Yeah, And they're literal, they're dogmatic, they're ideological. They've changed a lot, obviously, in the last few thousand years, and they continue to, but that's so much of it too because in the garden of eden there's the tree of knowledge right which adam and eve partake of um and there's the tree of life too there's two trees in paradise 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice. These are things, and these are things that actually Kafka was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, back to him, and because probably Nietzsche was thinking about it, and he was reading Nietzsche, and he was reading Schopenhauer. I keep reading, and I don't understand it. It's number sixty-four of the Zero Aphorisms. The expulsion from paradise is eternal in its principal aspect. This makes it irrevocable, and our living in this world inevitable. But the eternal nature of the process has the effect that not only could we remain forever in paradise, but that we are currently there, whether we know it or not. Wow. That's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like the Calvino at the end of Invisible Cities. Yeah. Where he says you have to find what is not inferno. And, you know, that it, it's, it, it's always we are and we are not. In we are in paradise, we are not in paradise. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, the eternal contradiction that, mm -hmm. you know, paradise. art can resolve. And, well, or can give you glimpses of mm -hmm. yeah. the, of the balance. Know, as does ecstasy, yeah. all of the, of, the, of the beauty of what, you know, what is beauty that it yeah. reminds you. Yeah, yeah. Beauty is what's greater than we are, right? The awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Micheline. Thank you for coming on the show and spending the hour talking to us. Um, My pleasure. <laughs> and uh, we'll speak again. And everyone out there, until next week, keep speaking love and war and mystery. If I could make love incessantly, I would be God.